When I was park district president in Chicago years ago, in the nine museums on parkland, I realized we're not doing business with black companies outside of construction and catering. So I, we called them all in and we put them on the spot. They agreed to put together a symposium where they would bring, we would invite minority entrepreneurs to meet with the leaders of the museum community to be able to do business. So they came up with an invitation for that event. And on the front of the invitation was a man with a hard hat on and a shovel in their hands. And the tagline was digging up business. So when these museum heads thought about black entrepreneurship, they thought about us using our hands to dig. They didn't think about us as being Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or being a lawyer or an accountant or a money manager or a consultant or an advertising executive. They thought about us, you know, in that way. You're listening to Conversations with Shanta, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Up next, we have John W. Rogers, Jr., co-CEO of Aerial Investments, the global value-based asset management firm and the first African-American-owned asset management firm in America history. Shonda sat down with John to talk about the term supplier diversity and how black and brown communities have gotten trapped in the lowest margins and the least economically viable parts of our community. Instead of the supplier diversity term, we need to move into business diversity and for the first time start to use black and brown law firms, accounting firms, consulting firms. You get the idea. But what a radical thought. And there's so much more to unpack. So let's get right into it. One of the things I learned from my mom, and she showed me a lot, and she, you know, took me everywhere she went. And I started to see a broader horizon. And, you know, as much as she faced sexism and racism, being the first black woman to graduate from University of Chicago Law School, she didn't believe there's a glass ceiling out there. She always wanted to achieve the highest, you know, climb the highest mountains and achieve the most. And I think she showed me that I should have broader dreams than maybe I, I, I normally would have or than my father had. On the flip side, my father's the one that every birthday and every Christmas after I was 12 years old, bought me some small amounts of stock instead of toys. You know, $250 of General Motors and $250 of Commonwealth Edison and, you know, et cetera. And he let me get to keep the dividend checks that would get mailed every three months from these blue chip companies. And I fell in love with the markets. And uh, he took me to, down to LaSalle Street to meet the first black stockbroker on LaSalle Street, a man named Stacy Adams. And I would sit with Stacy and he would show me how the ticker tape worked and what to look for and how to do research on companies and understanding the markets. And I just fell in love with it. But it was that exposure, even though my dad, again, wasn't wealthy. You know, he was a Tuskegee Airman and he had gone to teacher's college and, you know, he had come up with both his parents had passed away by the time he was 12. He grew up with very little, but he wanted me exposed to the same things that white Americans were exposed to. And the stock market was one of those key things. He was determined when I got to be 12, I was gonna have a modest little stock portfolio. Did you envision where you are now when you started, when you started the company? Well, I thought it was a good idea at the time. Um, 
you know, I was I was inspired by the great entrepreneurs I mentioned already today here in Chicago. You couldn't help but be inspired by John Johnson building Ebony and Jet at an early age. George Johnson creating Afrosheen and Ultrasheen at an early age. You know, George Johnson also started Soul Train with Don Cornelius. He started Independence Bank that became the largest black bank in the country. He was just an extreme role model. So um, that was an inspiration. But there had never been an African-American money management firm in the country's history when we started in 1983. And so I saw a real opportunity to um, where I thought that enlightened institutions would be willing to work with uh, a black money management firm and that individuals would be willing to work with a black owned mutual fund company. I remember John Johnson told me at dinner one day, I was fortunate to know him. He said, I'm not sure this is going to work. I'm not sure white Americans will trust you with their money. Uh, he thought that was a really big risk. But we ultimately have performed really well. Our aerial fund that started in 1986 is compounded at over 11.5% a year after fees since 1986. And we, we're really proud that we can show up, show our performance ahead of our peer group and our benchmarks over that entire 35-year period. There's been good times and bad times, underperformance and great performance. But over the long term, uh, we've been able to demonstrate performance, and that's how we've been able to, to grow and, and, and succeed in building our firm. And I always thought that if we performed well with our investment strategy in small and mid-cap value investing, that we would really grow into something significant. I always saw that as a real potential. And um, things I didn't realize were going to happen, of course, was that I'd meet someone like Melody Hobson when I was recruiting minority students for Princeton. And she was this eager 17-year-old. And she came and, um, you know, uh, summer interned here at Ariel and then joined us 31 years ago and she graduated and you know this, having that kind of leadership has been extraordinary uh, you know I had never dreamed that Arnie Duncan when he was working here running all of our community affairs would one day be the secretary of education and you know and, the, the, and then of course never dreamed that my my former teammate at Princeton uh, Craig Robinson who uh, I he stayed with me on his recruiting visit when he came to visit Princeton when he was 16 and we were teammates when I was a senior on the team and Craig was a freshman phenom, could have never seen that one day Craig's sister, Michelle, would be the first lady of the United States, you know, and um, have a chance to be a part of that journey, uh, having, having helped recruit uh, Craig to Princeton. So there's some things he could have never foreseen, never would have had a chance to dream would happen. And um, we, we hopefully now are just starting to um, reach our potential at Ariel. I think we can do a lot more and, and grow a lot more um, with the team we have today and the product diversified product mix that we have and the kind of um, performance that we should be able to hopefully get to a whole nother level over the next five years. I, I have uh, two thoughts, but I don't know why when you were talking, I thought about my grandmother and she was about 90 when uh, President Obama was elected and she started to lose her memory, but she left the news on all the time. So you would go over there she would be counting her pennies, you know, she just count pennies. And then she would, um, someone would say, and President Barack Obama, and she would look at the TV and she'd go, what? We got a black president? <laughs> and then she'd go back to counting her pennies. And then like, you know, 30 minutes later, they say his name again. And she goes, I never thought I'd see this in my lifetime. And then there'd be tears fall. Like she was just on this cycle and it was like excitement every hour. Um, and... <laughs> Um, you think about her being born in 1915 in, in Alabama to to being of an age to to both be emotional, excited about 
something that she could never envision that came true. So that 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 came up for me. The second thing that came up for me is that um, you were uh, instrumental in starting a school, if, if I read that correctly, and that school does focus on exposing children to investment and money and financial literacy. Why did you see that that was important? Well, it happened when Arnie um, Duncan was running our philanthropy. Um, he, along with his sister, Sarah, came up with an idea that we should help start a new small public school in Chicago. And the idea behind the Aerial Community Academy in the beginning was that you needed to have a smaller public school with smaller class sizes, robust after-school programming to make a difference. And they wanted to be a model of a small public school when they created the Aerial Community Academy. Before they created that, they had been part of the I Have a Dream program that Eugene Lang made famous. We had a sixth grade class that we had adopted and been very involved in those kids' lives. And Arnie and Sarah decided we needed to start earlier. And that's why it was a, you know, pre-K through eighth grade is the Aerial Community Academy. After we'd been up and running for a short time, maybe it was a year or two, I'm not exactly sure how long, I realized that um, there's no reason why we shouldn't have a financial literacy curriculum in the school and uh, try to emulate what my dad did and give the kids real money to invest in real stocks. And so the idea was that every first first grade class would get a $20,000 class gift. They would watch us manage it the first six, seven years, and then they would start to take over managing the portfolio themselves, uh, picking real stocks uh, with real money. And they would work with our analysts down here uh, at Ariel's offices, and we would go down and talk with the kids about how to do research and how to you know, do their homework and pick the right stocks. It's really worked out the way we had hoped. I mean, it's, uh, we have over 500 kids there at the school. When the kids get to eighth grade, uh, they take $20,000 of the corpus and give it back to the next first grade class. And just say if, it's, if the, if the 20,000 has grown to 50 or 60,000, they take a portion of the profits that are left over and create a philanthropic gift, often for the school or the local community. Arnie thought teaching the kids philanthropy, which you would appreciate, yeah. uh, was really important. And then what's left over, the kids would divide among themselves. And if they agreed to put the money into a 529 program, we would match it with $500 to teach the kids about matching, having put some money away for their uh, future college uh, tuition. And so, you know, it's still a work in progress. Uh, even though it's 25 years old, um, we, we can make this program stronger and better. And we used to have, and we need to get bring this back, we used to have a newsletter, it's kind of like that old highlights uh, publication where we uh, show the kids uh, in sort of colorful terms how to think about the markets. Um, we would send them uh, age-appropriate statements uh, showing how the money was growing each and every quarter or so. But one of the things we didn't anticipate in the beginning, or a couple of things we didn't anticipate, one, the kids would spend a lot of time um, after they learned about the markets going home and, and, and um, teaching their parents or grandparents about the markets, you know? And that was a bonus we never thought about. And then finally, a lot of the kids, they saw that financial services careers could be something they could think about. And they saw someone like myself or Melody or others, uh, folks of color doing research, picking stocks. They started to think about doing that themselves. And so many of the young people have gone into financial services and some have started their own businesses and become entrepreneurs. We've created kind of a mini alumni association. And the last thing I'd say in the old days when, um, um, Don, Don Thompson was the CEO and, 
uh, for the president of the McDonald's, we would take them every year, 40, 50 kids out to the McDonald's annual meeting oh. where, where I serve on the board and the young people would get to ask a question at the annual meeting. One kid would get picked to ask one question. And then afterwards, they would spend an hour with Don Thompson and his wife, Liz, and the chairman of the board, Andy McKenna. But they would you know, talk to Don about how did you become CEO of one of the most iconic brands in the country? Uh, and Don, of course, being this, you know, down-to-earth African-American guy would just, you know, really tell them all the hard work and all the efforts and all the things that he did that got him to that position in his life. And uh, that was always a favorite. We tried to bring great speakers down to the schools to talk to the kids and, and uh, expose them to as much as possible. But we needed to continue to get better and better at it and be more consistent with the execution. Yeah. We hope it could be a model of how financial services companies could partner with urban public schools in this country. That's what we keep dreaming. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my mom is not here. She passed away a, a little bit over a year ago, but she would always talk to me about um, this banking program in her school. And she was like, if you could just do one thing, you know, like in all your leadership and community, if you could just get a banking program back in the school, every Friday we would bring money from school when she was in elementary school and they would get their bank books and they would get to see their statements one, once a year. And she talked about it as her favorite thing all the way through K-12. That was the thing that she looked forward to the most and what she um, felt like was most impactful. So you really just want up this. So I wish you could hear what you, <laughs> shared, what you just shared with us. And then, you know, I had the opportunity to listen to um, Ursula Burns uh, one time. I think it was that uh, she was speaking at Target. And I remember her sharing that when she came to Xerox and, I, and it stuck with me, she said, I don't even, when I got there, I didn't even know what the CEO was. Mm -hmm. And the importance of all of the things that you just said that are so deliberate, but in the last piece of just being able to see folks that look like you, CEOs that are African-American, Black men, Black women in these roles, folks of color, the impression and the inspiration that it leaves in our communities is tremendous. Well, it's self-serving for us to say this, but I do think, I tell people all the time, you know, Ariel would have never made it through his first three years if the city treasurer, Cecil Partee, hadn't, convic hadn't convinced the city's pension fund to give us a million dollars to manage, you know? So all the, whatever good things we've done with the Ariel Community Academy or the Black Corporate Directors Conference or developing leaders like Melody or, Jason Tyler, who's the CFO of Northern Trust Bank, and Shundran Thomas of Northern, who's on, on the um, uh, management committee there. They all started their careers at Ariel. And all the community work that we do with Melody chairing after school matters here in town and all the rest, it wouldn't happen without customers. And this idea that so many of the anchor institutions in our community don't work with black money managers, if, if we hadn't had those early companies, uh, customers, we wouldn't be in existence. And so I do think it is important for all progressive institutions, if they care about our community, they've got to work with our community and allow us to have economic empowerment. You know, Dr. King often talked about how white Americans deplore prejudice, but accept or ignore economic injustice. And that continues to be the state of our society today. And slowly but surely, after the George Floyd murder, a few enlightened people are starting to think about this. I've actually talked to two wealthy white women just in the last few months who've called up, just I bet them through various circumstances saying they realize they could be doing more, you know, 
And it, it's starting to dawn on people that this economic justice issue is, is, a, is a big, big, big deal. Um, but it still is gonna take a lot of work and we gotta use these role models we said earlier, those that have done this well, hopefully it'll help shame people into doing the right things, you know? And um, because sometimes people just don't know how to do it and they're afraid of it and they, or, or they have this unconscious bias. You know, last example, I always give this, when I was park district president in Chicago years ago in the nine museums on parkland, I realized we're not doing business with black companies outside of construction and catering, you know, supply chain stuff. So I, we called them all in and we put them on the spot because the park district, they were on the park district land. They were getting direct subsidies from the Chicago land taxpayers. So they agreed to put together a symposium where they would bring, uh, we would invite minority entrepreneurs to meet with uh, the leaders of the museum community to be able to do business. So they came up with an invitation for that event. And on the front of the invitation was a man with a hard hat on and a shovel in their hands. And the tagline was digging up business. So when these museum heads thought about black entrepreneurship, they thought about us using our hands to dig. They didn't think about us as being Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or being a lawyer or an accountant or a money manager or a consultant or an advertising executive. They thought about us, you know, in that way. And that continues to be too much of a problem in our society today. This implicit unconscious bias is still prevalent in so many ways in so many institutions. And, 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 and people are, because of an unconscious bias, they don't even know what they're doing. And that's why it's up to us to call them on it. Yeah, when we talked briefly on the prep talk, Yesterday, I mentioned that an article had come out that talked about Black businesses dropping by 40% over the last year. And I, you know, a lot of it is likely due to the pandemic. But we're here in Minneapolis where George Floyd's death was recorded. People went to the streets, lots of social unrest afterwards, and our community really suffered from it. As such, lots of companies have been moved in new ways to think about Black wealth, investing in Black communities, and how to support Black leadership. And um, I, I would really love it if you could offer any perspective on just how they might lean in differently than how perhaps they've thought about those investments uh, historically. I mean, I'll tie them together a little bit is that because one of the things that when I analyze the fact that it's been such a tough, tough year for African-American businesses, it's partly because we are often in the lowest margin uh, parts of the economy. You know, often we're doing the catering, the construction, the janitorial services, the supplier diversity parts of the spend of major anchor institutions in our community. And of course, when the economy got destroyed because of COVID, all of a sudden, those types of opportunities dried up completely. We had no more jobs, our businesses closed. While most of white American, where the economy is the strongest, where people are investment bankers, they're lawyers, they're consultants, they're private equity leaders, they're in technology. All those businesses thrived even through, throughout COVID. So I start with that to say that part of the problem is we fall into this trap of the term supplier diversity and have gotten trapped in the lowest margins, least uh, economically viable parts of our, our economy. And it's something that we have to uh, transform if we want to be able to create multi-generational wealth and opportunity for our communities. So one of the things we hope the corporate America will do and the anchor institutions, our local hospitals and universities and museums and foundations, will start to do business with Black 
and brown people in the parts of the economy where the wealth is created today and get rid of the term supplier diversity and replace it with what the University of Chicago calls business diversity to signal that these anchor institutions are willing to do business with us in all aspects of their spin. And for the first time, start to use black law firms, black accounting firms, black consulting firms, public relations firms, advertising agencies, technology firms, money managers for their endowment, et cetera. And if these anchor institutions that say they care about our community start to use us in everything that they spend money on, we will have an opportunity to build businesses of scale and have multi-generational wealth opportunities. But that's a transformative thing. And I tell people all the, ter- all the time that the term supplier diversity is kind of like blockbuster video versus Netflix, you know, or BlackBerry versus the iPhone. It's literally 40 years out of date. And if we want to transform the world, we have to use the term business diversity and start to think about using us in everything the money gets spent on. Mm-hmm. I was part of an effort to increase uh, women on corporate boards this last year. And um, it was very interesting to go through this process. And I I think that they're a a bit related, but I'm very surprised when you look at the data that the corporate board uh, room and then some of our large scale philanthropic organizations um, and nonprofits, that those boardrooms have not gotten more diverse. Do you see build wealth strategies and who's on those board seats sort of one in the same or necessary for that to happen? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. And I'll try to do that and hopefully, you know, follow up if I don't quite get to the answer. So I I think that one of the things I would start with is to say that being on nonprofit boards and corporate boards can have an enormous impact on creating Black wealth. If you have Black and Brown board members who are willing to lean in and not accept the status quo. So most of the time we, we get into these, you know, the rare air of a corporate boardroom or a big university or a hospital or a foundation. We're happy to be there. You know, we're one of the few black folks with all the white leadership and we don't challenge the way things have been done. And um, we don't follow in, in Congressman John, the late Congressman John Lewis's footsteps when we see things that are not right and not just. We don't have the courage to make good trouble and push and change the agenda. So at Ariel, what we try to do is not just admire a problem, but come up with solutions. We created a conference 18 years ago with my friend Charles Tribbett from Russell Reynolds for African-Americans on corporate boards. It's called the Black Corporate Directors Conference. And over the last 18 years, we've had extraordinary speakers from Ursula Burns and Ken Chenault, Valerie Jarrett, President Obama, Shonda Rhimes, Kerry Washington, Magic Johnson, you know, we've just had, you know, and then we have white CEOs, Jamie Dimon, David Rubenstein, Jeff Emelt, you know, great leaders that have come. But the highlight of the conference every year is what we call the conscience of the conference. On Friday night, we've had people like Harry Belafonte. We had the late Congressman John Lewis. We've had Congressman Clyborne. We've had Andy Young. Uh, we've had Reverend Jackson, Reverend Sharpton, Sherilyn Eiffel, um, Mark Morial people to remind those of us that are in the boardroom that we have a responsibility to fight for economic justice once we're in the boardroom, to keep track of how the economic opportunities are either coming to our communities or not. And, and, and so that conscience of the conference every year we think has been transformative and hopefully slowly but surely we bring a few more board members into the, uh, into the spirit of we're willing to speak up and speak out and fight for our community wants to in these leadership roles. Um, because as I tell Reverend Jackson all the time and Reverend Sharpton, 
having more of us on the board who don't speak out, it ultimately is more of a problem than a solution. Because if you're sitting in that boardroom and you don't speak out about the unfairness about how the money's being spent and who's being hired for this, that, or the other thing, then the white CEO says, I diversified my board. My diverse board members aren't saying anything's wrong. I'm going to keep doing things the way I've always been doing. And you give cover for the status quo to stay the same if you sit in that boardroom and don't speak out and speak up. So we have to get, again, the John Lewis types of leaders in that boardroom, uh, people who are willing to fight for us once we're there. Otherwise, getting on the board seat doesn't move the needle at all and sometimes can be counterproductive. Yeah, I appreciate um, hearing it in that way. I also, you know, I sit inside of a community foundation. I'm often in conversations about typically on the development side of foundations, it's less diverse than on the impact side, the folks that are working in community. And there's lots of conversations around that and not just who's advising our investments, but who's staffing the work. But it's been very challenging to diversify who's showing up in sort of those investment committees and into those roles in our city. We are in conversations all the time about it uh, with that, but we haven't been able to make any headway. And I know that you are in that space as well. Are there things that you would recommend in philanthropy in the way that they are approaching it? Do you see it the same? I see it the same. And um, one, I have to count, you know, I know we, we, you know Jai Winston, who uh, represents the Knight Foundation in Minneapolis. And I was on the Knight Foundation board for 13 years. And Alberto Abarguin has created the best program of any foundation in the, in the country. And uh, they're a model of how uh, a major foundation can work with minority firms and push their majority firms and minority leadership on the relationship with the foundation. And they've just been very intentional about it. They said, this is consistent with our values. If we care about creating wealth and economic opportunity for black people and brown people, it's inconsistent if we spend all our money with white folks. Because by definition, if you spend all your money with white people, you're, you're part of the problem, not part of the solution. The wealth gap gets larger and larger every time we're locked out of an economic opportunity and it continues to go to the same wealthy uh, parts of our economy that is controlled by traditionally white males. And as you know, especially when it comes to investments, the wealthiest people in our country are people in private equity, hedge funds, venture capital, full stop. You know, in Illinois, our... Uh, the wealthiest guy in Illinois is a, is a hedge fund guy. You know, our former governor, Bruce Rauner, was in private equity. You know, it's just, that's just the way the world is. So if you really, and, and as you know well, being in the foundation world, all of the challenges that we face are all tied directly to wealth. We have poorer schools. We have poorer housing. We get poorer health care. We're much more likely to be incarcerated. All those things are directly correlated to wealth. So if you're part of a system of creating more wealth for white America and least wealth opportunities for black America, I just don't see how you square that circle, you know, because you're giving, you're giving donations and grants to communities. But again, if you create more and more wealth for white America at the same time, and, white, and, and wealth is tied directly to all the horrible outcomes that we have in our society, and we haven't been able to create wealth in our economy because of all of it. It's all tied back to Jim Crow and slavery and being locked out of our ecosystem. It's just, it's just to me, it's morally wrong. And uh, so, but to answer your question directly, it's wonderful that you have a couple of role models out there. The Knight Foundation having been doing the best work. Chicago Community Trust is doing great work in this area. 
And then in nonprofits, the University of Chicago has created the best program to work with minority-owned professional services firm than any other university in the country by far. Uh, you know, Bob Zimmer there, the president of the university, created a program 12 years ago, and they went from basically zero to now 95 minority-owned professional services firms work with the University of Chicago that didn't 12 years ago. And they have a symposium every year for two days where they bring in minority entrepreneurs to work with their vice presidents and chief investment officer, general counsel, CFO, head architect, et cetera. And it's been this extraordinary success story. And uh, the university is very, very proud of it. Again, they created this term business diversity. The woman who runs the program, Nadia Quarles, has been there from the beginning, is world-class. And um, we've had everyone speak to the group of uh, entrepreneurs every year from our governor, Quinn, to uh, my video, Michelle Obama, former Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan, et cetera. So there are some good actors out there and hopefully that'll catch on and more and more institutions will follow in their footsteps to help achieve, create real wealth in our communities that will help make a dent in our, in this wealth gap that gets worse and worse every year. Yeah, we often talk within our work around the build wealth strategies we are becoming more accepting or more familiar or more embracing sort of the history of, of this country as it's becoming, I think, more exposed and shown. The Tulsa massacre, the centennial coming up, people talking about it, people who have never heard of it. And there are some um, that we've encountered that know the deep history of wealth extraction in communities of color and the native communities. And then there's others that see it as an isolated incident. You know, how have you talked about sort of the extraction of wealth, right? Because it is one way in which you pass on um, to each generation opportunity. And do you think that this country or do you think that we completely understand sort of to the extent in which wealth has been extracted from our communities? Well, most of, uh, I know for sure, America doesn't know how much worse things are today than even since the civil rights movement was at its height. So I start with that to say, you know, the data from Ray Bashara at the um, Federal Reserve of St. Louis shows that between 1992 and 2016, roughly 25 years, college educated blacks saw their wealth decline 10%, while college educated whites saw their wealth increase 96%. It, you know, that's amazing. When we bring that data up, and this is the Federal Reserve of St. Louis, we had them come and speak to our Black Directors Conference. People were just incredulous of how much the wealth gap is getting worse, even for college-educated folks. Uh, you might know Dean Kerwin Charles, who's the dean of Yale's business school, has an enormous amount of data in this field. He talks about that uh, um, the wealth gap was going, moving in the right direction from 1940s to the 1970s. But he says since the 70s, African-Americans relative to white Americans were worse off today than our grandparents were. And that's just fundamentally the way it is. And here in Chicago, if you look at our business leadership group, as recently as 20 years ago, three of the top 150 privately held companies in Chicago were owned by African-Americans. Three of the top 150, 2%, you know, not good. In the city's majority minority. But today, 20 years later, we have zero of the top 150 privately held companies in Chicago or African-American owned. So it's just getting worse and worse and worse every year as wealth gap gets larger and larger. And so what's been, people think has been working, hasn't been working. So, so your point, white America has no idea how bad off we are, how we have no businesses of scale that can employ us, 
create our own philanthropy, create our own political empowerment, create our own jobs. Because all the data shows that when an African-American business is successful, we hire other African-Americans and we support our local churches and our local charities. You know, that was our legacy with John Johnson here from Ebony and Jet and George Johnson here in Chicago with Afrosheen and Ultrasheen and many, many other entrepreneurs. But we've lost all of that. And it's because these anchor institutions in our community do not work with us, you know, and if we can't be successful without customers, you know, and uh, it is just something that it's just the lack of understanding. And the final part of it is this goes back generations. You know, my great grandfather was J.B. Stratford, owned the Stratford Hotel in Tulsa. It was burned down in the Tulsa Race Massacre. He, we lost all that wealth and all that opportunity to create multi-generational wealth. You know, when you look at that throughout history, whenever we started to get our head above water, we would get destroyed. You know, we know what happened with the Freedom, Freedman's Bank, you know, after slavery. And we lost all the money that we put into that bank um, because of dishonesty and what occurred. We've seen that happen with People's Grocery in, in, in Tennessee when you built a great grocery store that was out, out, outperforming the white grocery stores. White community came in and lynched the owners of that rest of that uh, food store. When we get our head aboard the water, it's always something that comes in. From Reconstruction all the way to the Jim Crow era, uh, we haven't been able to build on our success and, and all the talent that we have in our community. One of the other uh, bits of news that we have in our city is that um, there's a black bank that's coming to town, First Independence Bank. It's one of only 18 Black-owned full-service banks in the U.S. And that announcement came out yesterday. And again, watching sort of the comments of, of community, even within the Black community, people feeling excited and skeptical. And then other people saying, why does the race of the person who's opening up the bank matter? Like, why does it matter? And um, it is it is still uh, fascinating to me every day, even though I'm in this work, why people don't sort of understand why that matters. Um, but it is an exciting moment for us. And this has been tried in the past. And I'm sure we have had black owned banks here that just simply did not do well. And, um, you know, it is my hope that people are willing to invest um, and make this successful. Um, but I'm wondering if you have uh, any thoughts in terms of things that we can do here in the Twin Cities to, to ensure um, its success. What I, I tell people about this issue all the time, it's very interesting to me, and, and it's, it's, it continues to be a problem today, and it was a problem 40 years ago. Black banks are often very focused just on lending, which is often the least profitable. Again, I talked about earlier, we always somehow find a way as Black folks to be in the least profitable parts of the ecosystem. If you look at J.P. Morgan Chase or Wells Fargo or the large black, the large white banks, they do lending, but they also do investment banking and they do private equity and they do venture capital and they, they, they get involved or have over the last four years in all aspects of the spin. And if you look at the profitability of the large white banks, it's diversified over all these high margin parts of the ecosystem. So if we're gonna be successful with a black bank, we need to do lending, that's important. It's important to lend to our local communities, but we have to diversify. There's no reason why um, black banks can't do what I do and be in money management. There's no reason why they can't do what Jim Reynolds does and, and Chris Williams and others and, and be in investment banking. 
And if they had done that, they would have had a diversified revenue stream in high profit margins. They would have been able to employ many, many more people, create much more profitability, and then have the wherewithal then to lend to local communities and local entrepreneurs that need that lending capacity. So we've got to figure out a way to get out of this siloed view of what a black bank is and follow what the white banks have done. You know, I just don't get it. I remember having this conversation literally 40, almost 40, 38 years ago, 37 years ago with the head of Independence Bank and saying, you guys should get into the business I'm in. Maybe we can do this together, be in money management as well as lending. Right. It just was not part of their thought process. Yeah. As we, as we wrapped, you talk about the, the two uh, donors that came to you. This is a common question that we get, and particularly, and I don't even know, but I'm in Minneapolis, right? I'm sure it's happening everywhere. But George Floyd, um, it's been uh, so immediate and urgent and concerning um, to just watch what happened in our city. You know, Minneapolis is one of the most generous cities. There are people that are doing lots of great work. But if you're not paying attention to the biases that you're holding and the differences you're making, and where you're giving your money and how you're giving um, money. And I get asked all the time, how should I, how should I invest differently in community? Like, how does my biases show up in my giving? Like, where should I be thinking differently? Like, what, what advice do you have for individuals with means that are thinking about how to get involved differently on issues of equity? Well, the, the two things that we're doing at Ariel, because again, we try not just to admire the problem, uh, we learned that from a friend, John McCarter, who used to run the Field Museum. He said, you know, don't just admire a problem, try to find out solutions. So one, as I touched on earlier, I think finding ways to get financial literacy curriculum into public schools in this country is a big, big deal. Uh, there's, there's a, a great program in New York City now, New York City Rise, where they're getting young people um, real dollars to invest for the long run early in their lives. And it's going to make all the difference in these kids' lives, getting them exposed to the markets. They see the magic of compound interest. They see it growing over time. So engaged and involved in not only financial literacy, but giving kids real money to invest in real stocks, teaching them about private equity and hedge funds and these lucrative parts of the economy. I think, you know, progressive donors can do that with your public school system. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I, I say, well, we're doing at the University of Chicago and everyone can do this at their local universities. We created a program for minority students to get paid internships to work in the investment offices of major endowments. Mm -hmm. And we've had now over 70 kids go through this program in the last four years, everywhere from Kresge Foundation, Knight Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, JPB Foundation, these young people of color are entering into a world they didn't even know existed, most of them, when they got to the University of Chicago. They didn't know there was an endowment office overseeing $11 billion. They didn't know that you could learn about a career in endowment management, or also when you're working in an endowment office, you're gonna learn about all the different asset classes that the endowment invests in. So we think this is something that any uh, progressive uh, leader can do is to make sure that foundations have robust internship programs that recruit minority students to learn about this magical industry where so much wealth and power and influence is created today. And as I said earlier, you know, the wealthiest folks in our community are often the people in private equity, hedge funds, venture capital. Where best to learn about that than being in the investment office of a major endowment or working in so many young people that they care about purpose, working for a, a wonderful endowment like yours, 
And knowing that every day as you pick better and better money managers and make better and better asset allocation decisions, that you're going to create more wealth to be given to communities of need. You know, or if you're at a, at a university, there'd be more dollars for scholarships for kids of need. You have a young person of purpose getting exposed to this whole endowment ecosystem we think is a big, big deal and think that our program at the University of Chicago could be a model you know, for the country. Yeah, I, I really do um, appreciate your time. I know that you have had a packed schedule. I try, I try <laughs> to keep you down to 45 minutes as promised. I appreciate really good nuggets um, offered here and you certainly have got me going. The supplier diversity thing hit right where it needed to hit for this podcast, because that is the conversation that we are in all the time in our city and to take it up a level um, and to have our businesses and corporations uh, think about that differently is, is a tremendous gift to our city. So thank you. Well, thank you. This has been really fun, a great conversation. I really hope we can stay in touch. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully when I get to Chicago and get to Joyce and I'll tell Paula I met you and then, you know, virtually. <laughs> Um, I hope you have a great weekend and I hope your evening is not much longer. Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing you when you get to Chicago. Sounds good. Take good care. Bye-bye. And there you have it. That's our guest, John W. Rogers Jr. and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. Have the courage to make good trouble. That's a quote I took away from this episode. If you loved what you hear and want to provide any feedback or questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can find my information on our website at minneapolisfoundation.org. I also want to congratulate our newest team member in our podcast team, John Coco, our new multimedia content curator. Thank you again to Sarah Gillen for making our artwork and copy for this episode. And thank you to Darlin Benjamin for coordinating and making this conversation happen. This is Sue Pak-Kinitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.